The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, turn again, if you will, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. We'll read the first 12 verses, then we'll move down to verse 36 to the end of the chapter. And the text for today really is verse 36 through to the end of our chapter. But first of all, Luke 24, verses 1 to 12, and then picking up again in verse 36. This is God's word. Let's give our attention to it. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, He said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures And said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high." Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. 
And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, we beseech you now through the power of the risen Christ and the gift and promise of you, the Father, bless us with your word. May we be filled with wonder and love and praise at the greatness of our Savior. And may you impress upon us, Lord God, the duties that are thus required of us, having faith in this remarkable Savior. Be pleased, Lord God, to work in each one of us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is Luke's account of our Lord's resurrection, and he portrays the resurrected Lord, the risen Lord, in rather vivid terms in our text. There is a real focus, especially with Luke, a real focus upon the fact of a bodily resurrection, the resurrection of true humanity. And our Lord then uses the event of his resurrection to teach about the significance of his resurrection. Looking back, our Lord teaches, his life and ministry fulfilled everything he taught and everything the Old Testament scriptures taught. Looking forward, his death and resurrection, the foundation of the era of the church and the content of what the church should be preaching. We see then how foundational the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is to all of Scripture, to our faith, and to who we are, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great wonder after the resurrection, which is alluded to in this passage also, is that he gives to his disciples and to the church the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, that we are clothed with power from on high as we seek to obey Almighty God in the church. Friends, today we worship and we proclaim a risen and ascended Savior who is the very foundation of this church. And the text before us lays out the two principles I've spoken of, the fact of the resurrection in verses 36 to 43, and the significance of the resurrection in verse 44 following, the fact of the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection. First of all, the fact of the resurrection. As I've mentioned, Luke has gone to great lengths to explain what kind of resurrection this is. Remember, Luke is a doctor, and as he researches the gospel, speaking to eyewitnesses, he has particular attention throughout his whole gospel and here to physical and medical matters. Notice the reaction of the disciples when Christ appears before them. It says that they thought they saw a spirit. But Luke, countering that idea with very specific words, tells us through the teaching of the Lord that this was a true bodily resurrection. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself. 
Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. It's very characteristic of Luke to focus upon these things in this peculiar fashion. He wants the disciples, he wants us really, to see that this was a true bodily, physical, material resurrection of Christ. That is to say, the one who had died and was buried was now back from the dead. And this resurrection appearance in the midst of the disciples happens while they were discussing the sightings that some of them had seen thus far with him on the road to Emmaus. As they're discussing these matters amongst themselves, we read verse 36, Jesus himself, notice that, Jesus himself, just like he says in a few moments later, it is I myself. It's an emphatic way of writing and speaking. There could be no doubt this was Jesus in their midst. Jesus himself stood among them, physically, bodily, present. And with that remarkable resurrection reality comes a remarkable benediction. Our Lord blesses them with the words, peace to you. Peace to you. Have you thought on this, friends? This is a post-resurrection or post-crucifixion and resurrection benediction of peace. Think on that for a moment. The circumstances mean everything to this benediction. Consider the facts. There is no one more qualified to give this blessing of peace than the resurrected Jesus. There's no one more qualified to give the disciples and no one more qualified to give us today this blessing of peace. Consider At the cross, what did Jesus defeat? He defeated the power of sin and brought peace to his people. At the resurrection, he defeats the power of what? Of death and thus brings peace to his people. Remember this, at his birth, an announcement was made. Peace to all men, peace on earth. It's a peace secured by the cross, sin, and the resurrection, death. Christ has had victory over all his and our enemies. And now he appears in their very midst and says unto them, peace to you. Just think on that, friends. The terrors of Satan, of death, of all the enemies of the Christian have been dealt a death blow in Jesus' death and resurrection. Consider even more than that the terrors of your personal sin in your life have here been proven as defeated by the crucified and risen Savior. Blessed peace we have. Christ is no longer in the grave, He's risen. And here He stands before and in the midst of His. Disciples, yet his disciples, as so often they were, fail to hear this blessing because they fail to see truly who was before them. Their faith was fragile. Verse 37 they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. 
They couldn't believe what they thought might have happened. They hadn't fully grasped that the Messiah must suffer, die, and be raised. They believed to a point, but they disbelieved. They thought they saw Jesus' spirit. They hadn't yet been able to reconcile death with resurrection. They knew our Lord's teaching. They'd sat under it. But they weren't quite there in their faith. And Jesus' desire in appearing to them is to set their heart at rest, to give them peace. He said to them, verse 38, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? And so he says to them, Look at my hands. Look at my feet, verse 39. He says to them, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And yet we read they still disbelieved for joy, verse 40, 41. They were marveling. They they couldn't comprehend that Jesus was actually stood in front of them. He had died three days earlier and been put in in a grave. And yet here he is physically, bodily before them. And just to prove that, he asked them, have you got anything to eat? And they find him a fish. Of course, it's a fish. And verse 43, he took it and ate before them. Why is Luke recording this? And what was the Holy Spirit thinking and designing for us as he inspired Luke to write this very account? Well, first of all, we've said it already. Luke is writing indisputably the record of a true, physical, bodily resurrection of the one known as Jesus of Nazareth. It's an indisputable record. Christ's design in appearing before the disciples is to elicit a true, strong, and sincere faith on the part of his disciples. They doubted. They disbelieved for joy, verse 41. We can say this, Christ's goal in revealing himself is that they might not disbelieve, that they might just have joy, the joy of belief. He reveals himself to them so that they might believe. But how did their faith come about in this narrative? Yes, Christ is showing them proof of all that he said. He was there before them. He ate. He said, touch me. And yet, is it not interesting to us that we are told that they they didn't believe when they saw him? We're still told in verse 41, they disbelieved. After he said, look at my hands, my feet, touch me, they still disbelieved for joy. Faith was not engendered in them by sight of Christ. It is not until later on in our passage, verse uh, 49, sorry, verse 48, where it says he opened their minds so they might understand the scriptures. That's when they got it. That's when they understood who was actually standing before them. It was not the sight of Christ that brought them to full, full faith. It was the teaching of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. That's really important for us. Not by sight, but by faith. 
by hearing and by the power of the Spirit. Two points of application to us at this moment. We're in an age where many in the world and many in the church are looking for signs, the visible. It's indisputable. If you know anything about the church at large, people are looking for signs. I want to say to you, friends, look around you today. You want a sign? Turn around, look at each other, see each other. Uh, Look at the world today. The whole world has some concept of Easter, whatever that might mean, that's founded on the very idea of Christ being raised from the dead. The whole world is living in an awareness of this very passage and the reality of the resurrection. You want a sign? Look to that. But it's not been... It has not been, and I emphasize this, for the last 2,000 years, faith in people has not been engendered by extraordinary revelations and appearances of Jesus from generation to generation to generation. It has not been that way. You were not saved that way. None of you saw Jesus bodily, and none of you have. It's been through 2,000 years of gospel preaching accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit which Christ gave to his disciples and promised to the church, that is the mechanism by which you have come to believe in Jesus Christ and in the risen Savior. 2,000 years of preaching accompanied by the powerful working of the Spirit of God, the promise of the Father. That's how we have believed. The same timeless spirit that Christ promised and would shortly give is here this day working in us. Testifying to us in your lives the facts of the resurrected Jesus. And we're bombarded all the time from temptations without and temptations within to look outside of the word and outside of the church to look to self, to look to signs, to look to feelings or culture for confirmation of what we are to believe. I want to say, friends, those things are utterly unnecessary. They are utterly unnecessary. And contrary to the way faith has been granted to you by God. In your lives, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has been an established fact, not by his physical appearance to you, but by the preaching of the word of God. That's remarkable. The fact of the resurrection established For the disciples here bodily, the fact of the resurrection established for us and the whole world through the word of God in the hands of the Spirit. But what does the resurrection mean? What in this passage is the significance of the resurrection? We've seen a true, real, material, bodily resurrection of the Savior. But what does it mean for us in this passage well the significance here of the resurrection our lord says is bifocal that means we can see two particular aspects of uh, significance 
Because our Lord relates his resurrection to what has gone before him, the past, and he relates his resurrection to what must come after him, the future. Verse 44 to 46, Christ relates the resurrection to the past. Look at the text. Then he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you, past tense, while I was still with you. He goes on to say that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Christ had taught them the reality in his own ministry, the reality of suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. He had taught them this. And he reminds them, I told you this. I told you this would happen. He's trying to strengthen their faith. But he also tells them in verse 44 that what he told them is the same as what their Old Testament scriptures told them. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms all spoke of the life, the suffering, the death, and resurrection of the Savior. It's interesting how he speaks here, our Lord. He says, everything written about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Those represent the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. Jesus is saying, there is much written about me in the Old Testament. Finding Christ appropriately in the Old Testament is not an invention of the OPC. Jesus says himself here, I'm right throughout the Old Testament. My life, my sufferings, my death, my resurrection are all present if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. Jesus is saying to them, you've already had this information to hand. There's abundant testimony to me of my life, my ministry, my death, my resurrection in the scriptures that you have had in your hands for hundreds and hundreds of years. But they still didn't get it quite, did they? Until we read this, verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Just imagine that moment. They got it. By the power of the Spirit, Jesus opened their minds. The light literally went on, metaphorically, of course. It went on. They suddenly understood all that Jesus had been saying. Note that again, friends. It's by teaching and the work of the Spirit that they understood not by the sight of a risen Christ. This is good news for us, friends. Two things it teaches us, what our Lord is doing here. First of all, it teaches us about the faithfulness and the assurance that we have in Almighty God. When God says he's going to do something, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, when God says he's going to do something, he most assuredly will do it unquestionably so unquestionably so god will bring to pass all that he has spoken including the life sufferings death and resurrection of the savior 
And what has God said? Two things will happen here. Yes, that his son would first of all rise from the dead. And here he is. And I say this, here he is. With his people here today in spirit and by the spirit. And that's the second thing the text teaches us. It is God who opens minds. And here we are today, those who once had closed minds, set against God. And yet he's opened our minds to see the blessedness of the Savior. What wonder this is for us, friends. The Christ of the Scriptures, not the Christ of our own imaginations, or the acceptable Christ of culture, of movies and TV, that Christ warrants no doubt in him whatsoever. Nothing in this text points to the issue of doubt. There is no unreliability in him. He fulfilled all that was said before. But he also says, my resurrection is the foundation of what is to come, verse 47 forward, uh, following. We read verse 46, thus it was written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And here is what it says, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Notice that. The suffering and death and resurrection of Christ is the foundation for what must come after it. And not just is it the foundation, it's the content of what must come after it. The suffering, death and resurrection of Christ is the content of what is to be proclaimed. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. Repentance and forgiveness proclaimed in his name notice that he says on the basis of what i have done go out and do something yourself do what proclaim the gospel proclaim the good news and what's needed in this gospel message well repentance and forgiveness now, for sure, that's not the entirety of the gospel message. Christ is using two of its principal parts to represent the whole, to summarize the whole of the glorious gospel. Uh, there is more to the gospel than this, but we also have to say this has to be there for the gospel to be present in its proclamation. The call to repentance, no matter how unpopular it is, must accompany the assurance of forgiveness of sins. That raises questions for us, does it not, as the church? In our public preaching, in our personal witness, is the call to repentance as present as the assurance of forgiveness? You can't have one without the other. The two must be present for a faithful gospel testimony to be given. It also raises the question for us individually, does it not? As we who claim to be Christ and we have good confidence that we are, is repentance part of our experience? Yes, that, that kind of seminal once for all repentance when we came to faith, but a continued life of repentance. We have to be continually repenting to, to be part of the gospel as it were. 
to be under the, the benefits of the gospel. What Christ is saying gives the lie to many Christians today who want Christ as saviour but want to live how they want. You cannot have Christ as saviour if you will not also have him as Lord. Repentance means turning from sin and turning under Christ, coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I want to ask any here who are present today who do not presently confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I want to ask you this. Will you not come to Christ for the grace of repentance and the blessing of forgiveness? Don't think you have to earn your salvation by repentance of a certain quality or a continued repentance. Come to Christ for repentance. It's a grace and God gives grace. We don't generate grace ourselves. Come to Christ for repentance. He will give you that grace. And as he grants you godly repentance, he will bless you with the knowledge that sins have been forgiven, hell has been subdued, and you personally have peace with heaven. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this day, and you shall be saved. Saved from all your sins. Our Lord tells them they are to declare and proclaim this message throughout all nations. This is Luke's great commission, the great commission in Luke, and we have to conclude the indisputable foundation of this commission is what? The death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus is saying to them and to us, on the basis of my death and resurrection, and with the content of death and resurrection, go and proclaim repentance and forgiveness. Moreover, he declares them equipped to do such. Verse 48, you are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. John uh, chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you, dwelling with us and in us. That's staggering. Not God in the flesh with us right now, but God in the spirit with us right now. With God's people, in God's People, we have the power of the eternal spirit of truth ministering in us and for us. That's the promise of Christ to his disciples. It's the promise of the gospel that Christ brings us. Christ describes it in this way. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And we know that has particular reference to the apostles in the early chapters of Acts, but is no less true of you today, dear Christian. Do you feel powerless in sin? You have been clothed with power from on high. The eternal spirit of truth. This is remarkable. Staggering truths to equip us as a church as a church plant going out 
and as individual Christians to walk in a manner that is pleasing of Almighty God. In response to this, we see the apostles doing two things. First of all, we see it in verse 52. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Friends, I want you to let that sink in for a moment. In response to the resurrection of Christ, they were continually in the temple blessing God. There was nothing more important to them than the worship of God. That was their corporate worship. Acts tells us they went up at the hours of prayer to worship God. The called worship. They went to worship God. I know there's many visitors here today. And there are many reasons, good reasons, legitimate reasons, why a Christian is sometimes not found in in corporate worship. Age, extreme distance, young children, sickness, whatever it might be. We all know the reality of sometimes we are stopped by God providentially from coming to worship. But I want to speak to us and ask us, why do some of us habitually absent ourselves from worship? The apostles were continually in the temple blessing God. We must ask the question, what are we doing, perhaps Sunday morning, but usually Sunday evening, what are we doing that is better than corporate worship of Almighty God? What are you doing, dear friend, if this is you? All providences aside and acknowledged, we ought to be the people, we ought to be the people who are continually in God's house, blessing God. God. It's our chief calling. It should be our chief desire to be here in God's house with God's people. Come rain or shine to worship the true and living God and the resurrected Jesus. What is there better to do than to continually be blessing almighty God? The second thing, of course, they do is they go into all the world (laughs) and teach others to do what they were doing, bless this God. That's the book of Acts. They go throughout the known world declaring repentance and forgiveness of sins. And tens of thousands of souls are saved. Not by another physical appearance of Jesus Christ, but by the word That is preached. Friends, we've got a great foundation here. A great foundation, we understand, do we not? From the gospel narrative to the work of the church, what we're dealing with here are supernatural realities. The Holy Spirit, supernatural. Personal discipleship is empowered by that Spirit. The work of the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The gospel age and the work of preaching the gospel is not to be done in our power. Why? Because we have none. We have no power unless given to us by Almighty God. 
Friends, as we rest in our personal lives, our family lives, our corporate life, as we rest on God, friends, think on this. We have been clothed with power from on high to do the work that God has sent us to do. Friends, we see then the, resu- the significance of the death and of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection was a fulfillment of all that had gone before it and the foundation of all that is to come after it. The very foundation of faithfulness. We don't talk about success. We talk about faithfulness. Success in the church is not measured by numbers, by budgets, or by church plants. Get that out of your mind straight away. It's measured simply by faithfulness. There are many who have preached the word faithfully for year after year after year and not enjoyed the growth in their church that we have enjoyed. Scripture puts it this way, one plants another waters, but God gives the growth. As we go to our church plant, friends, don't forget that. Don't forget that. Faithfulness is not measured in numbers or budgets or buildings, but in faithfulness. But even more than that, friends, we see in the person and work of Christ, we are assured two further realities. Paul will speak of this greatly in the book of Romans. By the resurrection of Christ, the Christian has been liberated from the power of sin. As we died with Christ, we have been raised, Paul says, to newness of life. And he means that now spiritual life now spiritual vigor now that the power of sin has been broken by the resurrection of christ when you sin and when sin and temptation assaults you friend you must embrace the risen christ because his resurrection is the assurance that the power of sin has been broken in your life but we're also reminded are we not The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ also guarantees our resurrection. For those who die in the Lord, there comes a bodily resurrection unto life. For those who die outside of the Lord, there comes a bodily resurrection to death. But for those who die in the Lord, there is a resurrection unto life life our dead christian dead shall in christ arise again and we shall be raised up to that domain in which righteousness dwells and there is no sin there is no pain there are no tears for the former things have passed away that domain that eternity friends where the christian will gaze on the beauty of Christ. He will say to us again, see my hands and my feet. It is myself. And we'll be with him forever. Our hopes will have been realized. Our faith will have been fulfilled. Our longing will have been fulfilled. And scripture says to us now, He who has this hope purifies himself now. Let's do that. Let's pray.
Almighty God, we bless you. We magnify your name. We praise you, Lord God, for such a perfect Savior, such a beloved Savior that would die for us. Help us to love him this day and all days. Work in those that know you not, Lord God. Be pleased to bless with faith any that are without faith. And Lord God, we do ask you, draw near to us that we might delight in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.